Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We know the Bible tells us not to worry. There are so many things to be concerned about, and if we weren't concerned about them, would they get done? Or when Jesus says not to worry, is there more to his words? You're listening to Going Deeper, Therefore I Tell You, Do Not Worry, by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Um, For visitors here, we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called Growing Deeper, and we call it Growing Deeper because in this sermon series, and Jesus does this throughout the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we feel Jesus push us beneath the surface of our obedience and the surface of our actions down to the root and to the heart of the matter. And today we'll hear one of the most famous and one of the best loved parts of that sermon, and you'll hear him pushing us deeper again. And I will say, just I, um, I said this this morning too, I always think of Scott Sharda when I read this passage because Scott had this passage tattooed on his shoulder. Let's listen. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear? Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? I mean, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow, they don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Do not worry, says Jesus. We need to talk about and think about worry. Because by almost any measure you choose, worry and anxiety is a growing problem in our society. If you talk to teachers, if you talk to school counselors, if you talk to regular counselors, they will tell you that especially among youth, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college kids, They are hearing more and more stories of young people who are paralyzed by worry and anxiety. And these aren't just anecdotes. These aren't just stories. These these, these are backed up by data. Jean Twenge in her book, iGen, talks a lot about this, the growing problems. Just one data point. It's from 2012 to 2015. That's just three years. Um, Depression among High school boys rose 21%, and among high school girls, 51%. In 2017, 
The New York Times published a long feature article about anxiety growing in young people. And they talked to therapists, they looked at some of the reasons why anxiety might be growing, and they told stories of what happened to some of these kids, stories about kids like Jake. Jake, upper middle class kid, super successful, cruising through high school, looks like he's going, has it made, he takes three AP classes, he runs cross country, he participates in all this extracurricular stuff, all his teachers think he's wonderful, he looks like the kind of kid who's gonna succeed in college and succeed in life. And then all of a sudden, bam, as he gets close to his senior year, he hits this wall of anxiety and he can't function. He can't get up the floor. He can barely get to school. And he's still fighting it today, all the way into college. And he's not the only one. The article quotes a therapist from Arizona State University who studies these problems. Her name is Sanaya Luthar. And she says this. This is just about upper middle class kids now. These kids are incredibly anxious and perfectionistic. For many of these young people, the biggest single stressor they have is that they never get to the point where they can say, I've done enough and now I can stop. There's always one more activity, one more AP class, one more thing to do in order to get into the top college, in order to succeed. Kids have this sense surrounding them all the time that they are not measuring up. The pressure is relentless and it's getting worse. And that's the kids with means, upper middle class kids. Imagine how it is for the disadvantaged. And that was in 2017, before the pandemic. I promise you that nothing that's happened in the last three years has bent those statistics downward. Worry, anxiety, a real problem in our world. The people to whom Jesus was speaking on that mountain would also have known worry. Remember who Jesus is talking to. We talked about that in the first sermon of this series. His disciples are there, but the rest of the people are people from the crowd who have come to him for healing. So the people who were there were the harassed and the helpless who were so desperate that they traveled miles to come to Jesus' feet in the hope that Jesus would take this misery out of their family. So these are people who have real problems in their life. They're the ones sitting on the side of the mountain listening to our Lord. And Jesus says to these desperate people, do not worry. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. God takes care of them. He'll take care of you. Beautiful words. But let me admit to you that if I were on the mountainside with those people listening to Jesus, I might be tempted to stand up in the middle of his sermon, something, by the way, you should never do. But I might be tempted to stand up in the middle of his sermon and say, now, Jesus, hold it. Stop right there. Do not worry. I love you, Jesus. Those are beautiful words. But how exactly am I supposed to do that? How does that work? Can I just stop and will myself out of worry? Isn't saying to someone, do not worry, isn't that a little bit like saying, don't think about pink elephants? If I say to you, whatever you do, people, don't think about pink elephants. Please don't think about pink elephants. What fills your head? Pink elephants. Now you've told me not to worry. You know what's happening to me, Jesus? In addition to all the things I was already worried about, now I'm worried that I'm worrying too much. And furthermore, would it really be a good idea if I stopped worrying? Isn't worry part of what makes me successful? 
Isn't worry, my worrying about the problems of my life, part of the way I address these things? If I just came up here on Sunday morning, if I didn't worry about my sermon all week, didn't think about it, came up here and just said whatever came to my head, would that be a good thing? If you school students here, if you just didn't study for your test, if you figured like, yeah, I'm not going to worry about it, I'll see what happens when I show up, would that be good? Don't I need my worry? And besides that, Jesus, there are so many things. My child comes home from school every single day crying. How can I not be worried about that? Jesus, I have a marriage that is flatlining, that I'm barely holding on to. How do I not worry about that? My mother has got early onset Alzheimer's. My sister is dying of cancer. My business is falling apart. And you just say, don't worry. I don't, I don't know how to do that. Lord, I love you. I want to do what you say, but I don't know how not to worry about these things. How is this supposed to work? Worry is part of the landscape of all our lives, something we all wrestle with. Let's listen as Jesus pushes us deeper on this issue. Jesus is going to push us beneath the sort of the roar of our worries down to the roots where worry can churn up and where worry can come from. And if we listen carefully to what he says, he addresses two assumptions that we human beings get that end up being a kind of a fountain of worry that we carry in our heart. He challenges the two basic assumptions of people who worry. How do I get to those two assumptions? Let's start with this. I talked earlier how um, young people today are maybe the most worried generation that we've ever seen in our lifetime. Um, what's also true about the present generation is that they are also the most worried about generation. They're not just the most worried, they're the most worried about. People are constantly pouring concern and worry towards our children. Parents, we do that, right? We worry on our children. We care on our children. We warn our children. But it's not just parents. Educational institutions worry on our children. Our children are the most tested and most measured of any generation that we've ever seen. Right from the very beginning when they start school, our educational institutions are measuring them at every possible level of aptitude every year. And if things aren't going well, if they're on the wrong side of the data, they're intervening. Our medical institutions worry on our children. As soon as our children come out of the womb, what's the first thing they get? A measurement. The APGAR score. And it goes throughout their whole life, right? We keep measuring them. And again, if they're not measuring up, we intervene. We do things. Every childhood experience that kids can possibly have is also measured and studied. Sociologists have done studies on the proper amount of X, Y, and Z that you can expose your children to. How much music? How much sports? How much sleep? How much homework? How much cross-cultural experience? You name it, whatever your kid has experience of, that's been measured and you're being told this is what you got to do. And I haven't even begun to talk about safety devices. We enshroud our children in safety. Put on your helmet, get the monitor, put the app on your phone. Never has a society worked so hard to measure and protect our children. And that's okay, right? I, I don't want to speak against any safety measure or any individual measurement that we are making for our children by any of these institutions or by any of these parents. But let's ask ourselves, 
what is the body language of all that testing and all that safety and all that measurement? If we are constantly measuring our children's success and protecting them from danger, what is the message that we are unintentionally sending them? Two things. One, the world is a dangerous place. The world is a very dangerous place, so we got to keep you safe. So put on your helmet, watch yourself, don't talk to strangers. The world is dangerous. And the second assumption we're teaching our children is that it's all up to you. When we keep measuring our children, what we're telling them unintentionally again is, you have got to measure up. You've got to be on the right side of the data. Heaven help you if you fall behind the curve. Stay ahead, stay on top, or this harsh world will eat you up. So the unintended body language of all of our testing and all of our protections, and again, I'm not speaking against any of these things, is the world is harsh, and honey, you better measure up. And if that's the message our children are getting, it's no wonder they are worried. Worry and anxiety is a complex phenomenon. There's a chemical portion to it. It can have to do with brain chemistry as well, but there's also a nurture and also a spiritual side to it. And on this spiritual side, we are unintentionally sowing worry into our children. And it is those two assumptions that push worry down to people's hearts that Jesus is coming against in these words that he spoke to us today. And we know that because the two things that Jesus says in this sermon to us go against those two basic assumptions, that the world is dangerous and that it's all up to us. First, Jesus tells us to consider the lilies. Consider the lilies, consider the flowers of the field. Look how the Lord takes care of them. Consider the birds of the air. God takes care of them. He's going to take care of you. With that instruction, Jesus is pushing against the assumption that the world is evil and harsh. The world is not an evil place. The world is not a dangerous place fundamentally. The world is God's world. He's out there every day clothing the lilies, feeding the birds, making the sun to shine on the earth, watering the earth with rain, bringing forth harvest, moving the seasons in fruitful order. In 10,000 places, our Lord makes beauty shine. And in every single one of those places, it is a message to us that yes, there is trouble in this world, but at its heart, this is my world and it is good. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Viktor Frankl, a psychotherapist who was imprisoned by the Nazis in a concentration camp during World War II, writes about some of his experiences there in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And Frankl tells a story of a day when he and the other prisoners were on a long march back from where they had to work to their barracks. And it had been a particularly brutal day. They were completely exhausted, it was raining, it was cloudy, there was mud everywhere, and they were utterly done when they got back to the barracks. In that concentration camp, those people would have had every reason to believe that the world is a harsh place. They would have every reason to worry, right, in a concentration camp. So they got back to the barracks, they sat down, and they were just starting to rest when someone burst into the, one of the other prisoners burst in and said, hey guys, come on outside, come on outside, you got to come out right now. And they went out to look, 
and the sun had sunk beneath the cloud bank and the rain had stopped. And the whole workyard, even though it was covered with mud, was lit up. Every puddle looked like the sea of crystal. Every ridge of mud looked like an altar. Here's what Frankel says about it. We stood there marveling at the goodness of creation. We were tired, cold, and sick. We were starving to death. We had lost our loved ones and we didn't know if we'd ever see them again. Yet there we stood, feeling a sense of reverence as old and formidable as the world itself. Nothing that happened in that moment gets rid of the surface worry of those guys, right? They're going to go the next day and they're going to be worried about living in that concentration camp, but it does something to their center. Worry may be at the surface, but worry isn't in their heart. In their heart is something like hope in a God who brings the sunshine and moves the seasons. Consider the lilies, says Jesus. The second thing Jesus says, this time to overcome the assumption that it's all up to us, is seek first the kingdom. Don't worry about what you should eat or wear or drink. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Seek the kingdom. Now, how does that get rid of the sense that it's all up to us? If Jesus says to you, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, that sounds like something that you have to do, right? Sometimes we hear that word and it sounds like, well, the kingdom and the righteousness of God, that's like this tremendous mountain of work we have to do as Christians. And if we're good Christians, we climb that mountain with every ounce of energy that we have. We seek his righteousness and we get to the top of that mountain. We made it. And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. But that's not what Jesus means here. When we seek the kingdom and find it, when we seek his righteousness and find it, what do we find? Is this righteousness something that we achieve? Paul tells us what the righteousness of God is in the book of Romans, Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The kingdom and righteousness of God are not something that we achieve. They are something that God gives to us. We don't find that righteousness in that kingdom. That kingdom and that righteousness finds us. To seek first the kingdom of God is to realize that it is not up to you and your achievement. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is to realize that you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own thing, it is the grace of God. When you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, when you arrive at it, you find that it's been seeking you and surrounding you the whole time, and it never depended on your SAT score, or your 40-yard dash time, or how many followers you had on Instagram. It has always been about the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ and his death for you. Now, of course, as we live as Christians, we do work. We do seek to become better people day by day. But let me ask you this. How many of the 12 disciples came to Jesus by seeking him out? How many of the 12 disciples ended up at Jesus after saying, well, you know, Jesus, I went around, 
I looked at all the religions of the world, all these other teachers, and you're the one, Jesus, so I want to I join up with you. Would that be okay? How many of disciples came that way? Zero. They were all picked up by the scruff of the neck and yanked into God's kingdom and into his righteousness. And what about Abel James, wherever he is right now? Is he seeking the kingdom? Not so much. He's probably seeking his thumb, maybe his pacifier. But he's not seeking the kingdom of God yet. But what found him here at this font? The kingdom of God. Now, in his life as he grows up, he will seek God and his kingdom and will train him to follow the righteous paths and he will seek his whole life. But every time he makes advances on that, he will end up back where he started, at this font, with that water, with those promises, with this God, with this people. We seek only to find the thing that we've sought has been with us all along from the very beginning. As we grow up, as we teach our kids, as they watch us, as they hear what they, we say, may they know that there are two very different assumptions at the center of our lives. God is good, and his grace is free and incredibly strong. So that as our kids grow up, if they see those two assumptions living in us, they may worry on this surface, but at their heart, they will be children of hope and children of joy. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and your righteousness which finds us. Lord, you know how we live in the midst of strong worry. And you know how sometimes that worry just creeps from the surface of our lives and down towards our heart. We thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit continues to build something different in us through your word. Lord, make us people who carry your hope deep within our hearts so the world may see and so that our children may see that you are good and you are God. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.